Welcome to RUF, y'all. Uh, and at RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what that means is that we think that God's grace is super important. We think that the gospel, we think that Jesus is super important. And so we're glad you're here. And this semester, we've been in a series called Songs That Shape Us, which is in the Psalms. And kind of our theme has been that the Psalms, they meet us where we are, and they take us where we need to go. And tonight, we're going to be looking at Psalm 13, which uh, is titled A Song About Distress. It's a Psalm 13. <clears throat> so uh, after college, I was an intern with RUF uh, at the University of Kentucky, which, shameless plug, if you are graduating and you don't know what you want to do with your life, you should be an RUF intern. It's really great. Or if you do know what you want to do with your life, you should also be an RUF intern. It's a really great job. Uh, but for me, it was a dream job in a lot of ways. I, uh, I wanted to do vocational ministry. Like that was my goal from sophomore year of college on. And so it was perfect for me because I could drink coffee with people, uh, talk about Jesus, and just hang out on a college campus all the time, which was really, really fun. But one part of my job that gave me a lot of anxiety, um, which is ironic, was the fact that you would preach once a semester as an REF intern. And I really wanted to do ministry really bad, like that was my goal, and I wanted so desperately to be really good at preaching and to wow people. Uh, and then one, one semester in particular, my campus minister assigned to me John 17, um, which is not like a particularly difficult passage, but he, he gave me John 17 and he wanted me to preach that at large group. And so he told me that about two weeks in advance, and I studied for probably something like 40 hours. I mean, I, I, like I knew the passage backwards and forwards, but the only problem was whenever I started to sit down to try and write it out, like nothing would come. It was the worst case of writer, writer's block. So I just, you know, kind of took my time. I'm like, okay, eventually the anxiety of it will get me to start writing. It'll be fine. <laughs> and so I find myself in the library on campus at the University of Kentucky trying to write the sermon the day before it happens. And it's just not working. Uh, I had the worst case of writer's block I'd ever had. And that was when the panic started setting in. So I was like, oh my gosh, 24 hours from now, I've got to stand up in front of all these students that I desperately want to like me, that I desperately want to affirm me, and I have nothing. And so I would keep going back and trying to write something good, and I just couldn't do it. And my mind started racing, and that's when I started spiraling. I couldn't do anything. It was like, well, if I can't do this, then I can't do ministry. If I can't do ministry, then who am I? I was just in the spot where I was questioning everything. It was like close to a panic attack, but not quite there. Has anybody ever been in a position like that, where things start racing like crazy? I was in a place of distress. And I think a lot of us can relate to this feeling. Uh, maybe we can relate to it with schoolwork. Uh, for some of you, you might be in very difficult semesters where it feels like you have absolutely too much to do and not enough time to do it. Um, but for others of us, we're coming to the end of our college career, and we're starting to think about what's next. And maybe we have parents who are asking us what's next. Maybe we have parents who are like, why did you choose that major? What are you going to be, a Walmart reader? Um, so there's lots of anxiety with that, and we feel, we feel this pressure. And it can be paralyzing. Like It's hard to know what to do in the midst of that. But I think we also feel this in, in relationships. I know a lot of us, uh, sometimes we can get in this place where we feel like we're constantly holding other people's stuff. People are asking us to do things, and we just can't say no. We're constantly taking on people's issues on ourselves, 
And then we get to this place where we start thinking, I can't keep doing this. Something has got to change. And maybe that's not where you are right now, but I'd be willing to bet you've been there before. Uh, And if you're not there right now, I'm sure someone that you know and someone that you care about is actually there. Uh, I don't know if you've seen on campus the green lights everywhere and the green bandanas. Um, This week, the Green Bandana Project is on campus, um, which is a mental health awareness thing, which you should check out. And I was researching into that and uh, found some pretty alarming statistics. It says that uh, 36% of college students struggle with depression and 14% with suicidal thoughts. And then of all of these people, 50% of students think that it's a negative thing to talk to someone about this. There's a stigma. You see that almost the majority of us are struggling, and yet we are scared to death to talk about it. What can we do with all of this stuff that's going on inside of us? What can we do with our anxiety? What can we do with our depression? What can we do with feeling overwhelmed? Thankfully, this is where the psalm meets us. It meets us in this place of distress, and it gives us a roadmap. And this psalm is uh, it's called a lament, uh, which is kind of basically an ancient way of saying a really sad song. It's a song that uh, is, is all about crying out to God for help in a time of need. And it's filled with brutal honesty, like honesty that makes us uncomfortable. But actually, this is about one half of the psalms are laments. They're sad songs. So this psalm meets us in our distress, and it shows us how to deal with God in the midst of it. So as we look at this passage, we're going to be asking the question, what can we do with our distress? And I've got three things we can do with it here. First, we can name it. Second, we can cry for help. And third, we can move forward in trust. So we can name it, we can cry for help, and we can move forward in trust. So Psalm 13, I'm going to read it for us. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that uh, you don't leave us to deal with um, distress. You don't leave us to deal with difficult emotions on our own. Um, Lord, and as we're going to see tonight, that you encourage us uh, to own how we're feeling. You encourage us to tell you. You encourage us to tell others. Lord, I pray for those among us who are really struggling, uh, who are having a very difficult go at it, and maybe they haven't even told anyone. Lord, I pray that um, you would speak words of comfort to them through this time. Lord, I pray that this would be a place where people would see we're not alone, and that we're given hope in the gospel. So, Lord, open our eyes and open our ears. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what can we do with our distress? First thing we can do is we can name it. We can name it. In, verse, uh, in the first two verses here, the psalm opens with, like, just pretty much just hits you right in the face, distress. Like, it doesn't start out with an introduction or anything. It just starts out with these loud questions. 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long? And we see that this distress, these questions, these how longs that we see in this passage, they're facing in three directions. They're facing upward in terms of his relationship with God. They're facing inward in terms of how he's feeling. And then they're facing outward in terms of how he's relating to the world around him. So first, upward. We see in verse 1 that David cries out with this question, how long, directly towards God. He asks, are you going to forget me forever, God? He feels like God's forgotten him. He feels like he's in this place of divine neglect. He says that God's promised to be his father, and it just doesn't feel like he's acting that way. Have you ever been in a place like that? A place where you feel spiritually abandoned? Here we see David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, saying that he has felt like that. And then he put it in a song, and this song has been sung for thousands of years by the faithful people of God. But second, we see this this inward distress. He says in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Uh, When he says take counsel in my soul, basically he's saying, how long am I going to have to be my own counselor? How long am I going to have to be my own therapist and listen to all my own issues? How long am I going to have to have all this stuff racing around in my mind and no one to talk to about it and no one to listen to me? Have you ever felt like that when it's so overwhelming and you just can't shut it out? That's what David's describing here. And then he says, in in the second part, he says, and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long am I going to have to be my own counselor? How long am I going to have to be consumed with sorrow? Many of us might know what this feels like, to have a, a mind racing that you just can't stop. For every single waking second to feel agonizing. And here we see that a faithful man of God knows what that feels like. But we also see this uh, distress is also outward. It says at the end of verse 2, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And David wrote this psalm. and He's the king of Israel. So naturally, it would make sense that he would have some enemies. He would have people from rival kingdoms that wouldn't want him to do well, but he would also have people within his own kingdom. At one point, David was running from Saul the king of Israel, who wanted to put him, put him to death. At another point, he's running from Absalom, his own son, who wanted to kill him. David knows what it's like to have enemies. But this psalm, it actually doesn't give us a uh, specific situation that David was in. Rather, this is David writing a psalm for the people of God to sing constantly. And he's inviting us to put ourselves in it. He's inviting us to think about our enemies and if you're anything like me, maybe you don't have like you don't have an enemy. I mean, I had older brothers who I thought were my enemy at one point in my life, but I was just being overdramatic. Um, but maybe you, you don't feel like you have an enemy, but I bet you have something that makes you feel like dying. For some of us, it might be a mental health struggle. For others of us, it might be uh, seeking after parental approval, and it's just not working out. So this invites us to name our outward anxiety, to ask God, how long will I be thrown around by my circumstances? How long are things going to be like this? 
So we see here this, this upward with God, this inward with ourselves, and this outward with our surroundings. We see this distress. And we're invited to name this distress. That's where this psalm starts. It doesn't start with talking about how amazing God is. We're going to get there. But it starts with naming what's going on. But some of us might be thinking, like, like why do that? Right? Why name what's going on? Like, what's, what's the point? Uh, the, uh, the movie The Emperor Strikes Back is uh, one of my favorites in the Star Wars series, in the original trilogy, which is very important. Uh, but there's a, there's, a scene, uh, there's a scene in The Emperor Strikes Back where Luke is in the Dagobah system, and he is in the swamp, and he's in, he's in Yoda's, tw- Yoda's swamp, and he's training there with, uh, with Yoda when he notices this dark, scary, and foreboding cave. And when he looks at it, he's like, I, I, don't like, I don't like the look of that. And then he asks Yoda, what, what's going on with that? Like, what's that over there? And Yoda says, well, it's the, I'm not going to do the Yoda voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> he says, it's a, he says it's, it's a cave that's strong in the dark side. It's a dark place. And then immediately after that, he says to Luke, in you must go. You have to go in there. And Luke's kind of a little taken aback by this. He's like, what am I, what am I going to do? Like, what's in there? And Yoda says in the most cryptical, like classic Yoda way, he says, only what you bring with you. Just like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So Luke goes into this cave and it's really like hazy looking and, and crazy. And he walks in and then immediately he's met with his enemy. He's met with Darth Vader. And as I was watching this movie as a kid, I was like, you couldn't have told him that, Yoda? Like, it's Vader right there. That's the enemy. And then they have this really quick lightsaber battle, and then Luke cuts his head off. And you're like, oh, well, that's really anticlimactic. I guess the series is over now. Um, But then when he cuts Vader's head off, you see the face of the person that he's just killed. And it's not actually Vader's face. It's his own. And you know, the whole thing has been an illusion. You see, Vader wasn't actually in the cave at all. What was in the cave was Luke's terrifying fear of becoming like Vader. And for some of us, naming our distress can feel a lot like entering a dark cave like that. It can feel like going into a place where we have no idea what's going to happen with nothing to protect us. But in the same way that the cave forced Luke to take a look at his deepest fear and see who he was, naming our distress in an honest way before God, enables us to see who we are. And it enables us to see how we're dealing with God in the midst of that. So some of us still might be a little bit resistant to that, right? You might be thinking, well, like, what's the point of talking about this? Like, we read this stuff that David is saying. It's like, I, I just, what's the point? Like, it won't change anything if I name all this stuff. But I think when you, when you think that way, there's an assumption underneath what you're saying. What if your deepest need is not a change of situation, but it's a change of heart? What if you don't just need a change of situation? See, we see here that God invites us to name our distress because he wants us to deal with him in the midst of it. He wants to walk with us through it. He doesn't just want to put us on the other side. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you're here today and this makes you uncomfortable because you're thinking, well, God is just so good. Like, I shouldn't complain. God's amazing. 
And I, that's fair. God is good. I want to affirm that. Here at RUF, we believe that God is good. And, and some of us want to rush to verse 6 at the end, talking about trusting in God's steadfast love, talking about rejoicing and singing and hallelujah. We want to rush to verse 6 before we name what's wrong. And because we think that when we talk about what's wrong, we're somehow detracting from God's goodness. And if that's you, I want to ask respectfully, where did you get that idea? This is not from the Bible. What if God is so good that he is okay with you telling him that you're not feeling his care? What if God doesn't need you to hide what you're going through? What if you could actually talk about it before God? And if we can talk about these things before God, how much more can we talk about it with each other? Christian community should be a safe place where we can say, I am not okay. This is going terrible. Things aren't going well for me. So God invites us to name our distress before him. We can be honest. But not only can we be honest, we can also cry out for help. If you would look with me to verses 3 and 4. It says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. So we see after uh, we've named all of these different distresses that we're feeling, this distress we're feeling in our relationship with God, this upward distress, we see that the, the only solution for that is for God to consider and answer us. So in the face of feeling like God has forgotten you, this psalm tells you to say to God, look at me, answer me. I feel like you've forgotten me. Where are you? The only solution for feeling forgotten by God is for him to look at you. And that's what this psalm invites us to do. But then also in our inward anxiety and feeling like you're your own counselor and having sorrow all the day, we see this request. It says, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. And this is a request for new life. This is asking, Lord, I am going to die on my own. I need you to give me new life. In the face of feeling sorrowful, we can ask for new life. And then finally in verse 4, in the face of feeling as though his enemies are exalted over him, we see David reasoning with God. He says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. It's as if David is, is naming what's going on. He's naming his enemies triumphing over him. And he's saying, God, if you don't answer me, I'm going to look bad. And more than that, because you've promised to take care of me, you're going to look bad. And he's just saying, what are you going to do about it, God? What are you going to do about it? And these are bold requests to make of God. How does it hit you to make these sort of bold, demanding requests of God? For anything like me, it makes, makes me a little uncomfortable. Jesus actually tells a story in the, uh, in the New Testament uh, in Luke 11. And it's about a, a man who has a friend who comes into town at midnight after a really long journey. Uh, and this, uh, this man, unfortunately, when his friend gets there, he realizes, I have no bread to offer this guy. And in the ancient world, that would have been a really big deal because it was a huge hospitality culture. So if someone shows up at your house and you have no food to give them, that's like shame upon shame on you. 
So this guy, his friend gets there, he realizes he has no bread. He's like, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go ask my neighbor if he's got bread. But the problem is it's midnight. But he doesn't care because he doesn't want to feel that shame of not having something to offer him. So, so he goes over to his neighbor's house and he starts banging on his door. Remember, it's midnight. And the neighbor comes to the door and he's like, bro, I, I've got kids in here. What are you doing? Go away. Stop it. Stop banging on my door. It's not my fault you don't have any bread. But then the guy keeps banging on the door again and again and again. And finally, his neighbor consents, gives him the bread and sends him away. Like, how annoying is that? That's like my nightmare. I do not want to be like that. Well, the only problem with that is that Jesus actually talks about this man in this story very positively. He says in the same way that this man would not go away until he got what he wanted, we should pray to the Lord in the same way. We should be bold in our requests. We should be borderline annoying with how much we ask from God. We're supposed to be that free in the things that we ask God for. So how does that hit you? How does it hit you to ask God for these bold things? And some of us still might think that praying in this way, it it is annoying, right? Some of us might think that's annoying to God. But again, where did you get that idea from? Many of us might have uh, grown up in families where it it was annoying for us to ask for things. We were told that it wasn't okay for us to have needs. And if that's you, I I just want to encourage you. God's not like that. God's not offended by the fact that you need him. Actually, he wants you to need him. It's good news. But some of us are here and we like to pretend that we don't have needs. Right? No No matter what, I can perform. I don't ever want to appear as needy. I don't ever want to be vulnerable. None of that. And if that's you, I, I wonder how long that's going to work. Eventually, you're going to have to turn somewhere. How are you numbing the pain of pretending that you don't have needs? Because the reality is you do. You do have needs. But the good news that we see here is that we are invited to cry out to God for help. We're invited to cry out specifically for what we need. We don't have to deny our need. God doesn't need us to do that. We can go directly to the source and ask him for what he needs. That's good news. But third and finally here, we see that we can move forward in trust in response to our distress. If you would look with me to verses five and six. It says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And, you know, if you've been paying attention all along, we see a pretty drastic change in tone here, right? In the beginning, we're starting like a pretty sad, like, Bonnie Bear song or something like that. And then we get to this, like, you know, kind of demanding, like, maybe heavy metal situation. And here we've got, like, Hillsong. Like, what? How did that happen? See, verses 1 through 4, they encourage us to be brutally honest and to ask big things about God. But here we see this calm and joyful assurance. David invites us to to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord, to rejoice in his salvation, to sing to the Lord. I think for some of us that that might be a little bit difficult, right? Some of us, uh, when we see verses one through four, we're like vibing with it. Things are very difficult. 
I know what it's like to feel like God has abandoned me. I know what it's like to be sorrowful all the time. And then it's really offensive when you get here and it's like, actually, you can trust God in the midst of this. That's hard. But then some of us on the other side, we are way too excited about this ending here. Like we've been waiting the whole time. It's like, okay, can we stop talking about things that are hard? Can we stop talking about being difficult? Please. Oh, thank goodness. I don't want to talk about what's going on inside of me. I just want to talk about how good God is. We just want to move straight to trust. But how can we move forward and trust when things still feel terrible? There's no indication in this psalm that that the situation has changed from verses 1 to 4 to verses 5 and 6. It's the same situation. Things haven't changed. And I think the answer we see here is in verse 4. It says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. I don't know what translation you're looking at, but that word steadfast love is translated a lot of different ways. If you have an older translation, it might say something like loving kindness Uh, or um, I think the NIV says unfailing love. Some might say mercy. Um, It's translated most of the time as like two different words because it's a really profound word. It's actually just one word in the original language. And it's a word that looks back to the story of Israel. So the original uh, hearers of this psalm, when they heard this, they would have immediately thought of Exodus chapter 34. Uh, And if you don't know Exodus 34 off the top of your head, which that's okay, I don't expect you to, I'll tell you about it. Uh, In in Exodus 34, just to kind of set the stage, uh, the story of the Exodus is a story of God rescuing his people from slavery and then bringing them out so that they can worship him freely and taking them to the promised land. And so God rescues the people from Egypt. You might remember the story of all the plagues that happen, and then he parts the Red Sea. The people walk through it. It's this miraculous story of deliverance. But unfortunately, shortly after this deliverance, the people fall into old patterns. And they decide that they're going to make a golden calf and worship it because they want to be just like the nations around them. When God's called them to be a distinct people who reflect who he is. This is like, this is a huge failure. This is like God, like God's like, you had one job and you couldn't do it. God should have destroyed them. But instead we see in Exodus 34, he doesn't. Instead of destroying them, he reveals himself to Moses saying this, It says that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You see, here at Israel's worst moment, God chooses love instead of punishment. God chooses to show grace when his people didn't deserve it. And David owns this as his story. And he encourages us to see this as our story, that we receive grace when we don't deserve it. And we see this throughout the Bible. God is in the business of giving grace when we deserve punishment. And we see this same steadfast love in Jesus. In Jesus, we see that God meets us with grace in the midst of our sin. New Testament says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our sin. He became the ways that we chose to be our own gods. He took that upon Himself and died for us so that we could have his righteousness. And when we reflect on this, we're enabled to move forward and trust because we see that Jesus has met our absolute deepest needs. So how is he not going to meet all of our other needs? 
There's no way that a God who would meet us in this way wouldn't take care of us and everything. God didn't bring the hammer down on us for our sin. He actually brought it down on Jesus. That's good news. And when this assurance becomes the central thing in our life, when we, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're enabled to move forward in trust even when things are difficult, even when we feel forgotten by God. We know that in Jesus, God has met our absolute deepest need, and we can trust him. Let's pray.